Welcome back to Just FYI Pod. Uh, my name is Chris Barnett. I'm back with my co-host Amy Welburn, and we're continuing our series on the 20 most spiritually significant movies of all time. Today we're doing selections number 18, your selection and my selection. And I'll go ahead and say as a matter of preview, they are both related to today's theme or, or holiday, which is Halloween. That's right. We'll come back to the significance <laughs> of that in a few moments. But before we do, you know, really get into the, the nitty gritty here, why don't we just say a little bit about where we are? You know, this is the Pizitz Food Hall in downtown Birmingham. It's a little chilly today. It is. You know, for, okay. for Alabama this time of year, this is quite cold, I would even say. <laughs> so uh, so why are we sitting outside at the Pizitz Food Hall? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, part of our deal is that we're trying to do these as conversations that friends have and when they go out for lunch or coffee or a beer or whatever. And so we're trying to do it in interesting places around Birmingham. And so today we're at the Pizitz, which is a former department store in downtown Birmingham, closed down decades ago, like most downtown uh, department stores. And it's got condos and then a food court on the bottom floor and a nice courtyard outside with very, very faint music this time. Yeah. Can't even hear it, we hope. I, I, I don't even know what song's playing. Yeah. I can hear the music, but I, I couldn't even tell you what it is. Speaking to the weather, though, it is it is a food court. We're outside, and we are the only two people out here. Right. So just know that your podcast hosts are working hard today. It's probably about 50 degrees with a nice wind that kind of blows through here and seems to create all kinds of Halloween-like yeah, echoes and noises. Yes. <laughs> all right. So before we get into the movies, uh, let's just quickly you know, sort of catch people up on what we've been up to. Obviously, we recently released a podcast on Killers of the Flower Moon, Martin Scorsese's new film. Uh, but then you also have something coming up, Sears, what, I guess at the end of the week. Yeah, I do. I'm actually leaving tomorrow, uh, driving up to South Bend from here, and I'm presenting a paper at a conference at Notre Dame on the nature of the person put on by the Dinicola Center for Ethics. And uh, it's going to be a great time. I'm really looking forward to it. It's a paper on a novel by Wilfred Sheed called The Hack. So I'll be interacting with a lot of folks up there and very excited to be doing that. So what have you been up to? Yeah. Notre Dame's a great place this yeah. time of year. Beautiful. Yeah. Um, yeah so I, I published recently a new entry on my Substack, And for people who've just joined right. the Substack because of the podcast, you know, I, I've sort of, it really started as me kind of writing essays on things that I wasn't working on in academia. Right. right. So, so kind of like, oh, I haven't thought about this movie or these are my favorite albums of the year or whatever. Uh, and occasionally I will work in something more serious or in depth. And this week, I wrote on Reformation Day. Uh-huh. Uh, as which is part, also today. Which, uh, indeed, it is. Right. right. No, it indeed it is, which was why I sort of yeah. you know, thought of that as a topic. And mm-hmm. I, I sort of focused on, uh, you know, the sort of origins of Reformation Day and Martin Luther's, you know, supposed posting of uh, the 95 Theses on the door at Wittenberg. And then what Reformation Day might mean to the sort of collective consciousness of the West. I, I think initially I wanted it to be a maybe a personal reflection. I mean, I'm sort of yeah. somebody who's had a foot in different camps on these issues over the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think ultimately it turned into something probably closer to an academic work than I really intended yeah. it to be. Uh, though I was rather happy with it. I yeah, mean, it, it definitely good. hit on yeah. a lot of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Whenever yeah. you can work in Rene Descartes and Nick Saban into the same essay, yeah, that's, that's, that's sort a of a win. Yes, yeah, it's really. a win. And that's sort of what that Substack was really meant to be about. You can't right. do that in an academic journal. It's not going to, pass you know it's it's, it's not going to pass muster with an academic publisher but for something like this it's good you know you can right. see the connections between theology philosophy and sort of our daily lives mm-hmm. and uh, i enjoyed working on that piece and my next one will be on martin scorsese's top 10 movies uh-huh. i thought the killers well, of the yeah the killers <laughs> of the flower moon discussion sort of prompted me to do that i had a friend say to me well what, what do you recommend of scorsese and i was like okay i'm gonna do this i'm gonna do this officially so great so all right so that's what i've been working on uh, immediately anyway i gotta always have long range projects but that's what i've been working on immediately and then also getting ready for this discussion today our halloween theme discussion mm-hmm. on the number 18 most spiritually significant film of all time you're going to choose what i have chosen the exorcist okay <laughs> a, <laughs> Perfect. A, a great choice. And we're going to talk more about The Exorcist here in just a moment. I chose Martin Scorsese's Bringing Out the Dead, which came out in 1999. Also a film that, you know, as I'll mention later, you know, has a number of sort of thematic 
uh, resonances with Halloween um, and All Hallowtide. So we'll, we, we believe that these are our ideal choices for the day. Yeah. We're excited to talk about them. Yeah. I think probably they're our, our, maybe our most popular films that we've chosen yet. Right. Certainly The Exorcist is. Yeah. Right. I mean, that oh, was yeah. a blockbuster hit. Um, so we're hoping people will enjoy this discussion. And I think we'll take a quick break and we'll come back and jump into The Exorcist first. Okay, we're back to discuss The Exorcist. And if you listen to our high-tech, <laughs> serious production quality there with the uh, with the music from The Exorcist, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we're going to start trying to work in bits of soundtrack into the podcast. Unfortunately, I don't have control over how long these clips right. are. Right. So that one seems to run about 30 seconds, which just means it gets to be stuck in your head all day. Right. right? <laughs> so, okay, so we're, we're here to talk about The Exorcist, as mentioned. And uh, I, I'll say up front, you know, I, I'm really glad that you chose this movie because it's a movie that I've heard about, mm-hmm. read about it, I've certainly seen clips of the special effects, the spider walk and these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. But I'd never actually sat down to watch the film until yeah. last night about... 8 30 p.m. <laughs> so and I was sort of dreading it the whole time like yeah. oh I gotta watch this movie I gotta watch somebody throw up on somebody yeah. like are you serious uh but I did find it uh to be a really good choice and I really thought it was a great film and I think it deserves sort of its historic uh you know reputation so anyway yeah. I'm really looking forward to hearing what you have to say about it so I'll, with that said I'll, I'll pass the yeah okay so my this was on my list anyway. It was on my top 20 list of spiritually significant films. Um, but So it just worked out really well that we were going to do this Halloween edition. So The Exorcist um, released on December 26, 1973. And let me just tell you, this was like, I was in eighth grade that year. And this was the movie that if your parents let you see The Exorcist, were you cool. were cool. <laughs> yeah, right. And I did not see The Exorcist. So I was not cool. Didn't want to see it either at the time. But anyway, it was based on a 1971 novel by William Peter Blatty, who also wrote the screenplay for the movie. Um, it was a huge bestseller was on the bestseller list for a year. So there was a lot of anticipation about what a movie like this would look like. You know, how how could this be translated to film? Um, it was directed by William Friedkin, who um, directed the award-winning French Connection. And it starred, um, as I said, it, the screenplay is by Blatty, who his background very briefly is that he was a writer of all kinds of things, but he was uh, did a lot of Hollywood screenwriting. He was probably most well-known before this for writing the screenplay for A Shot in the Dark, directed by Blake Edwards, which was the first Inspector Clouseau movie, comedy. Um, he was a Catholic. He went to Georgetown. He has a, you know, kind of an interested, convoluted, spiritual Wait, George, background. Georgetown's a Catholic school? Yeah, yeah they say back then, I guess it was. <laughs> Says the Villanova guy. Right, yeah, exactly. Right. Who are you today? Right, right. Um, and he was married four times, but he had a very serious view of his faith. In fact, later in his life, he like sued Georgetown for almost misrepresenting the Catholic faith or something like that. So he wrote the exorcist and had a hand in the movie the exorcist from a serious spiritual perspective he was trying to do something with this and yeah it's kind of maybe a little schlocky i don't know it's a horror film but he had a purpose and we'll talk about what that purpose is so anyway maybe you're sort of vaguely familiar with the plot um but i'm just going to go through the major parts of it anyway um there's kind of three main character strands that we see in the beginning of the movie that come together. The first, the movie opens in Iraq in an archaeological dig. And the character we meet there is Father Lancaster Marin, played by Max von Sydow. And he's modeled apparently after Pierre de Chardin. Um, I saw this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And who the famous philosopher, archaeological, controversial Jesuit priest. And I don't know if you noticed that in one of the shots of Karras's room at Georgetown, there was a big poster of de Chardin on I was, the wall. I think I was looking at his books. Or maybe, <laughs> maybe I was looking at his scotch. <laughs> yeah, I was sure. going to say. <laughs> it was one, but no, I, I missed the poster, but I was I was aware of, yeah. the, of the reference. Yeah. And I think Sudow as well was chosen because of his role in Bergman's films. Right. His, he's got a long history as somebody who embodies kind of religious angst. And right. So, and it, anyway, yeah, it's yeah, an interesting and connection. So there has, you know, he's old 
you know, and he is at this archaeological dig, and an amulet, a figure of some sort is found, and it means something to him. And that scene, that opening scene ends with him by himself having gone back out to the dig on a hillside, facing this huge, very threatening-looking ancient statue of that looks you know pretty demonic and they're aggressive looking we'll put that politely right right (laughs) physically aggressive yes and it's and they're facing each other the sun setting there's dogs barking the winds blowing it's a very ominous scene and to me what that that whole scene signifies is this man this priest recognizes evil and he is preparing to confront it, and he's prepared to confront it. Can I, I want to add yeah. something to that real quick too, because I also think the setting in Iraq, and the fact that he's surrounded by presumably you know Muslim right. you know people who are taking his work very seriously, I mean, he's, right. he's immediately recognized. Right. Uh, suggests I, I think in a very kind of faint way, but in a way that kind of registered with me that you know questions about demons or demonic possession are not the exclusive you know, mm-hmm. sort of province of Catholicism. Right. That, that there is in other traditions as well, this kind of awareness of, of evil mm-hmm. or, or of its representation in, in architecture and statues and so on. And right. so these, the, this priest is being supported mm-hmm. by, by these Islamic, mm-hmm. again, presumably it's not stated, but it seems fairly right. obvious. These, these Islamic, uh, uh, you know, uh, officials and, and uh, and workers and so mm-hmm. on. So he's sort of worked his way into this culture, which is again, it's right. it's not really glossed. They don't they don't expand on it why he's there, how he knows these people. Yeah, he's just a part of that world. It's very, it's like I understand antiquity. Yeah, <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, he right, and he understands evil from a very deep, mm-hmm. you know, kind of cultural place. Right, right, right. So then the second character that we meet is uh, another Jesuit priest, Father Damien, weird name for this character, but anyway, mm-hmm. just maybe the association with the omen that comes later. Um, but Father Damien Karras, played by Jason Miller. Um, Fantastic. Yeah, he's yeah. really good. And he plays not only a Jesuit priest, but a Jesuit priest who's a psychiatrist. And his you know, through line is that he has basically lost his faith. Um, he is having doubts. And... He also is racked by guilt and angst about his mother. This is, you know, he lives at Georgetown in Washington. His mother is in New York City, living by herself in poor health, um, resistant to moving. And in the course of the film, she dies. And he is very, feels very badly about his inability to deal with it. He's accused by an uncle who says, you know, if you weren't a priest, if you were like a, some rich guy psychiatrist, we could have put her someplace nice and taken care of her. And so he's carrying all of that with him, his religious doubts and his um, guilt about his mother. And then finally, we meet Chris McNeil, played by Ellen Bernstein, who is an actress, a film actress in Georgetown filming a movie. Uh, and she's rented a Georgetown townhouse, and she's there with her staff and her daughter, Reagan, played by Linda Blair. Have you been to the Exorcist Steps before no. in person? I have not no. either. And I've been to Georgetown, and I was like, why yeah. did I not do this? <laughs> um, yeah. And I was reading somewhere that this is one of the three most important steps in the history of cinema. You want to take a shot? At I would say two? Potemkin. Okay, that was mentioned, yes. Um, okay, well, maybe we'll, let's expand this to four. That Untouchables. Was well, that's that's a that's a, a kind of a, a knockoff. <laughs> on, on Potemkin. Yeah, on Potemkin. And uh, the Joker one? The Joker steps. Yeah. But Is I don't an... really count that. I think Potemkin beats the Joker steps. And then, yeah. of course, come on, the Rocky steps. Oh, of course. In, In Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Yeah, let's Sorry. Go, right? <laughs> right. So I thought that was interesting, but I somehow missed the opportunity to go by that particular spot in Georgetown, which yeah. next time I'm there, I will definitely you do. Dude, just don't fall. Yes, right. Don't, I'm going gonna, gonna to be at the bottom, not at the top. Right? <laughs> um, and so, you know, they're leading a happy life. Linda Blair is, you know, very sweet, and, you know, she and her mother love each other and all that kind of thing. And then things start to happen. And, you know, we're not going to go into all the detail about what happens but of course we all know that reagan poor reagan becomes deeply possessed by something her but they don't know this of course they don't acknowledge it or you know recognize it as anything like that they of course think it's psychological psychosomatic so she's taken to doctors those scenes of her getting tested are almost as horrifying to me mm-hmm. as the possession scenes. And I think they're designed to be I that way. That, yeah. I mean, the machines are loud. The needles are long. The blood's spurting. It's pretty, it's terrifying. And your, your sympathy for this girl just, like, grows and grows and grows. You think the implication being modern medicine isn't 
necessarily that different than right. some of the kind of the, the sort of grotesqueness and the brutality of of these ancient rituals. Right, right? and they're, and they're, that they're all the same. Kind yeah, of I mean, I think thing. it it has to do with um, our response to evil and, and mm-hmm. our response to un, the unknown and how do we try to to deal with it. But anyway, so she becomes very, you know, it just gets worse and worse, and finally, um, her mother reaches out to Father Karras, uh, Damien Karras, the doubt afflicted priest who greets her question with disdain you know because well let me just backtrack so the reason this even comes to her mind is because one of the doctors at a final meeting says well you know people used to believe in this thing that people could get possessed by devils and of course we don't believe that anymore but the catholics kind of still do and they still (laughs) do this ritual of exorcism and maybe she thinks she's possessed and maybe if you bring this ritual into it the power of suggestion will you know snap her out of it so she goes seeking uh answers to this and of course karis father karis is as i said doubtful he doesn't understand he doesn't think this is a thing this could be real anyway but in the end what happens is that he and father Marin team up that's the last 30 minutes of the movie is the exorcism yeah because i think i think you skipped a a step there just to say that you know he tries himself to work with her right and finds that the situation far more severe right than he could ever possibly imagine right yeah and um, so then Marin is brought yes, in, who right. has had experience in this, who, as it's, they say in the movie, spent a month performing an exorcism before right, and so right. on. Um, and I, you know, I, I found the exorcism scene, I, I have to say what surprised me about my reaction to the exorcism scene this time was I found it actually kind of moving because... I agree. Yeah. I felt myself almost wanting to cry at the beginning of it because she is suffering so much and even though it's clear you know the demon is like possessed her and is taken over um it's still a little girl and that is kind of expressed in the priest's treatment of her you know they gently they touch her hand they wipe her face and it's clear that what's you know what's going on here is not just battling evil right it's ministering to a little girl who's Mm -hmm. suffering in her family and so, in the end, what happens, I mean, spoiler alert, um, the older priest dies of a heart attack. We know that he's had heart trouble the whole time. Uh, right. And then, um, in the final crucial scene, I mean, they've been performing the exorcism according to the ritual. The power of Christ compels you. The power of Christ compels you. Um, and so, um, Marin has died. And so, it's up to Karis. And so, he confronts the demon in Reagan. Can, well, yeah, yeah that, go ahead. It, it is up to Karis, but yeah. it's not like he has moments to really think about. It, right, it's no, sort of, it's like instantaneous. Yes, he, he, go, he, he bursts into the room, and, right. and it's like it's a recognition that the situation is lost if he doesn't do something decisive. Exactly. Right. And so he he attacks her, you know, the demon in her, right. and says, come into me. Yeah. You know, take me instead. And it all happens in split seconds in that he does, the demon does, and you can see it in Karis' mm. eyes. And then just for a minute, for not a minute, a millisecond, he leaves. And, the, and Karis has this moment of self-awareness in which he clearly know, you know, kind of has to decide what he's going to do. Mm. And so as he goes back and is retaken, he throws himself out the window, basically goes down the steps, um, dies, or not dies, but he injures himself severely. His priest friend meets him and hears his final confession the best he can um and the film ends with reagan healed not remembering what happened and there she and her mother are leaving the house and this priest friend who is played by an actual priest william o'malley yeah Yeah. he was a jesuit um it's quite good yeah, yeah yeah um she doesn't remember anything, but she sees his collar, his Roman collar, mm-hmm. and something, you know, clicks in her, and she gives him a kiss on the cheek, mm-hmm. and they drive off. So, I mean, of course, there's a lot more to the movie, but, you know, the point is, I mean, and I'll talk a little bit more about what I think mm-hmm. the point is, but it's not nearly, you know, it has this reputation probably because of the way that the horror genre evolved in subsequent years, 
and then what the sequels were like, right? As, you know, schlock, as, um, you know, nothing more than sensationalism, but it's actually a very deeply felt film, I think. Yeah, as somebody who's just seen it yeah. for the first time, yeah. I, I can, I can 100% conf- would agree and confirm that in a way. I mean, it, you've always seen the, the head twisting right. and the, the spider walk and again, the throw up. Right, you know, right. Featured prominently, <laughs> right. indeed, like in that one scene. Right. You know, it's like having a four-year-old again that comes home from preschool. <laughs> like, that's right. what I was thinking. But uh, but in any case, um, you know, it, it's it's not really about that. And, no. and, and it's really just a very brief, given the whole length of the film, it's basically two hours. I mean, mm-hmm. you're talking that the sort of the shock value is probably a sum total of like two minutes. Right. Uh, right. You know, if you added it all up. But, but the psychological drama and mm-hmm. trauma mm-hmm. of the situation that's that's the movie mm-hmm. yeah yeah so um that's the plot yeah no i think that's a great that's a great summary and then i yeah i think so if you're if you're sort of widening that out right away from the plot and towards sort of like what it all means you know right. maybe especially from a, a catholic standpoint like where, where do you where do you come down well i mean i picked it for a couple of reasons i mean i think that it's spiritually significant from a like a cultural and social mm-hmm. perspective because you know it was 1973 that the movie came out the novel in 1971 and this is a period i mean unless you're an old you know like me maybe you don't remember but you know this was post vatican II period and even outside of the catholic milieu it was a period of secularism period of progress when you know human beings have more control over the world we have technology we have science we understand that in the past these they thought they were possessed but they were probably just epileptic or they had mental illness and we don't you know we're way past all of those medieval notions of possession or even medieval notions of a personal devil and this is what vatican ii was about right Right. it was about opening the church to the secular world right Right. And, and yeah and so you see that and in um the book, which I skimmed last night, Karis's faith doubts are kind of ex- more explicitly laid out and that he lays them on the feet of the fact that Karis doesn't believe in miracles anymore, that he's kind of past all of that. And so in a way, what The Exorcist, especially the movie did, was reintroduce a secularizing world to these rituals and these notions and the ideas about the reality of evil and you know again it's hard to believe that people could forget that you know we're talking you know decades after the end of world war ii and the holocaust and in fact i do want to mention that in the beginning of the book blatty has four um introductory epithets not epithets what do you call epigraphs um one is about <laughs> that would be Maybe appropriate. Those two, but... <laughs> um, one is a passage from the gospel, one of the gospels where Jesus exercises the demon, mm. says, "What is your name? We are Legion." Right. And second is a transcript of an interview with some mafiosa about their crimes, basically hanging people from meat hooks, I think, mm. and laughing about it. Third is from Dr. Tom Dooley, who was a physician working in Vietnam. Uh, before the Vietnam, before the Vietnam War, mostly, who was describing communist torture methods, and then the fourth is just the words Auschwitz and Buchenwald. And so, you know, he very clearly was trying to, you know, communicate the reality of evil mm-hmm. and to maybe a world that wanted to forget mm-hmm. that evil is real and powerful. But as he says in his own defense, because one of the ways the movies was criticized when it came out, you know, I mean, some Catholic venues criticized it for the, you know, the shocking elements, especially the sexually suggestive shocking elements, which are pretty strong. Um, Quick, but yeah, I mean, it's but a flash. Right. It's memorable. Yes, memorable. (laughs) Right. Um, But more Catholic criticism came from those in the pages of like America and Commonweal who said, well, this isn't like an accurate portrayal of the way that most people experience sin. Mm. You know, most people experience gradual temptation, gradual opening to sin. He doesn't talk about social sin or systemic sin or anything Mm. like that. And Blatty responds in writing to this, and he says, well, that's not what I was trying to do. He says, you're Mm. right. You know, all of that is a part of the dynamic of virtue and vice and sin. 
but that's not what I was trying to do. Mm. And what he was trying to do, as he said about the novel and about the movie, was communicate not only the reality of sin, but more importantly to him, the power of goodness and mm. the power of love. Mm -hmm. um, and I think this is where we get into the really important issue and I, interesting issue of the whole question of what actually drove the demon out? What ended the possession? Right. Was yep. it the ritual? Did the ritual fail? And was it just this, you know, sort of love that's manifested by Karis, or are they tied together somehow? Yeah, did 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 Blatty and Freakin did they Protestantize the <laughs> right the, the, the sort of message in a way, you know, right. turning it to sort of a matter of personal virtue, right, away from the church's kind of objective liturgy, right? I, I think it's a great question. You know, honestly, I, you and I discussed this briefly before we started. You know, my immediate thought after watching uh, the film was that it was somehow tied to the liturgy. But now that I think about it, as Father Damien's out of the room, we know that Father Karen is in the room, right? right. Or Marin, excuse me. Right, Marin. Uh, yeah, and he's in the room. And then when, when Damien enters, um, he's already, uh, Marin's already passed. Right. Right, and so he, so as we said earlier, he sort of leaps into the, into the scene, as it were. Mm -hmm. um, and he's not performing a ritual anymore. Right. And it seems that the ritual didn't work. And again, right. that didn't really occur to me initially. Yeah. Um, the other thing we were discussing, too, is how we know that Marin has done this over a long period of time. Right. So I don't know that in reality, Marin, again, if we're sort of thinking about this in, term, in consistent terms of what mm -hmm. we know about this man, mm -hmm. he would not have expected it to have worked in a single night. No. Um, no. And in my, my, my pretty limited understanding of exorcisms is that, in fact, they do often take quite a bit of time. Oh, yeah. Right. And so uh, I do think it's, an, it's, it's inserted into the film intentionally. Mm -hmm. And it raises a huge question, as you said. And I don't know that we can solve that either. Yeah. yeah. But then I th the other thing that it does, though, is then it puts the focus back on the, sorry, spiritual journey of, right, <laughs> of right. Karis mm -hmm. himself, which I think Blatty would say is maybe one of the main points of what he's trying to communicate. Is mm -hmm. this man who'd lost his faith, who didn't know what his faith was for, who was drinking and, you know, had no faith in himself or in God, he gets to a point he sees the reality of this of evil he sees what it's doing to another human being and he makes the decision he is you maybe he's filled with grace and he sacrifices himself for her so maybe it worked on him drove the demons out of him maybe maybe but but then again <laughs> they could have sold his you know you quote unquote evil a little bit more in a way yeah. I, I found him to be <laughs> quite sympathetic the whole right, time. Right. I mean, he's got, he does have a lot on his plate. I mean, he's right. going back and forth to New York. His, his mom is, is ill. Uh, you know, he doesn't really know, you know, if he should be at Georgetown or what his role in the church right. is. And, and he even says at one point, the Jesuits really trained him as a psychologist and that yeah. his, his sort of ministry as a priest was kind of extra or something. And, uh, and so there, there does seem to be in him that his, his despair doesn't feel evil or or even uh i don't know somehow forced i mean no, it feels kind of organic no. with the challenging situations that right. he's in so right. uh I, I don't i guess i wouldn't see that as like he was transformed <laughs> in that instant from something right. that was bad into something that was good right. but rather that maybe it actualized a kind of latent goodness in him but then also i think uh, it also might have actualized a latent belief in you know what the catholic church is doing in these exorcisms right, right? They, they, they this is not something we can work our way out of with a textbook or with, right. you know with an academic seminar or something it re requires decisive action right or it just opened him up Correct. to the presence right of christ in him yes i like that too right yeah right yeah yeah all right so you got some questions for me oh yes well okay so, so <laughs> with the categories in mind okay? I yes i actually thought about this one and i'm glad i did because yeah, yeah, i was yeah, like yeah. oh so, my gosh uh, okay you know, it's funny. I, I was thinking about my categories earlier today, and I was having a harder time than usual. So yeah. maybe this is uh, yeah, meant to be. Okay, so first category, the funniest moment. <laughs> There's well, can my, it be? I guess it's yeah. going to have to be unintentional. Right. Okay, because totally I tr actually tried to think of little humorous moments in it, and I couldn't think of any. Um, but the unintentional humorous moment to me is... I mean, the effects, a lot of the effects are good. The makeup is great mm -hmm. on her. It's very good. But the head turning yeah. is really kind of funny. I mean, yeah. partly because it's been parodied so much I think that's part in of subsequent it. years. But also, her face looks like Chucky. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, or or that what was there wasn't there a movie a few years ago about a doll named like Annabelle or something, yeah. which is clearly kind of modeled right. after Reagan. Right. Right. I agree, and I think even when that happened, I think my yeah, two of my teenage sons were watching with us, and they kind of laughed. Yeah. So, it's hard yeah. not to. It's, it is. It, it, and that's that to me is almost again kind of ironically speaks to the power of the film because yeah. the effects don't really hold up that well. No, and, and yeah. they're they're okay. Yeah, right? shaking bed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. Th- those are better. Right. right? Yeah. Um, but the effects don't hold up well. The power of the film lies in its spiritual, theological, psychological right. sort of import. So, yeah. Okay. Next category, most poignant moment. I think you might have already given this away. Yeah, I I think that the moment, th- those moments in the film when um, they're the exorcists are comforting Regan in very in the only ways they can. But also the most, I, I'm going to have to also say, I think when Chris goes to Father Karras for the first time and she's wrapped up, she's got mm-hmm. the scarf on, she's got an injury because her daughter mm-hmm. slapped her, slugged her. Mm-hmm. She's got sunglasses on and she's, she, Bernstein plays it so well. It's so, and she's just so tightly controlled, but she's, at the end of her tether. Mm. And I think anybody who has a child, even though, you know, your child is not possessed or you, they're really not, even though you think they may be, um, that, <laughs> <laughs> that um, you can identify with that moment. And she played it really well. Yeah, I think that's right. Okay, if you could only watch one scene. So if you could tell a viewer... Uh, you don't have time to watch this whole film. Watch this scene. I can it be a long scene? I mean, sure. can it be yeah. the exorcism scene? Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's an easy one for me. Right. I, Not the, the Iraq movie. scene. <laughs> no. no, although right. that's good too. It, I mean, it's I, thematically I'm a, interwoven, but yes, yeah. it feels like the extra scene. Right. right. Yeah. Okay. So the exorcism. I mean, it yeah. makes sense. I, yeah. It's hard to quibble with that. All right. Best performance. So this is a good one. I think, yeah, I yeah. thought about this one too. And I am going to say Linda Blair, even oh, though my conscience wow. is a little bothered by it because even though I mean she does not she speaks positively of the experience except for she did uh, get an injury in the process of it one in the scene where she's flopping back and forth on the bed mm-hmm. that was really her and she injured her spine mm-hmm. but so but she other than that she doesn't I think they gave her a lot of support I mean I'm very sensitive to the you know treatment of children in sure. film and i yeah. don't I, I do not like it when children in film do profanities i don't mm-hmm. like that at all i don't care what it is and i guess she wasn't saying it, she right? wasn't there saying was a but, voiceover. She, but she had to yeah. mouth it and right. she knew what she was doing and she was like 11 years old right. so i mean but at the same time i think her performance is very good you know when she's unpossessed she's natural and very you know affectionate and winning and then the way you know she holds up under all of that um, you know, torture basically, and she, I think she does a great job. And then you know, Max von Sydow, but I'm going to give it to Linda Blair. God, I just think Jason okay. Miller has got to oh, yeah. be the choice. Oh, okay. Like he's Sorry. got this sort of Marlon Brando <laughs> thing. Like I gotta say that, you know, he's sort of. And, and, you know, I don't know how this guy didn't become like you know the next Sylvester Stallone or you know or right. Robert De Niro or I, I, my understanding is he ended up being quite a good playwright. Right. Um, so I don't season. know that yeah. he laments his. You know, it's sort of acting credits really are, are pinned on this film right. maybe almost entirely. But right. nevertheless, an interesting uh, performance by him. All right, ultimate takeaway. The power of Christ compels you. And yeah. whether the power of Christ is love, self-sacrifice, the power of, the, uh, pa- the power of Christ is what uh, gives us victory over evil. Yeah, and that's the line that the priests repeat yeah. throughout the liturgy. Right. Yeah. So th- this seems like an appropriate ending point <laughs> and a good way to sum up the film. So... All right, next we're gonna, we'll take a quick break. We're gonna come back and we're gonna talk about my number 18 selection, which is Bringing Out the Dead uh, by Martin Scorsese. Okay, we're back here to discuss number 18, or my number 18, we've already discussed right. yours, The Exorcist. Mine is uh, Bringing Out the Dead by Martin Scorsese. And uh, you know, this is a movie that uh, I think has enjoyed something of, of a rehabilitation over the last few years. Um, I'll come back to my interest in it in just a moment, but I would say that, you know, the number of articles, if you kind of Google it on the web, there'll be a lot of like rewatching Scorsese's bringing out the dead after COVID. There's quite a few articles on that and you yourself have not seen it before. And so, you know, what, what was your sort of, yeah, I hadn't seen it, hadn't heard of it uh, to my 
shame but uh, last week my son Joseph and I watched it and really enjoyed it quite a bit it was a revelation and you know it had Nicolas Cage in it and mm-hmm. we're we're a fan of Nicolas Cage right. you know Better than Leo. Yes, we'll, we'll do a podcast at some point on Amy's favorite actors. And, <laughs> and Leo we, won't be on it. Leo's not on it. Nowhere, nowhere to be found. Um, so, okay, so for, from my standpoint, I mean, it's a movie I did see when it came out, um, 1999. I, I enjoyed it then. I would not have ranked it, you know, super high on any particular list. I wouldn't have said it was one of my favorite movies by Martin Scorsese. Um, but in the process of you know working on this book that came out in 2019, Scorsese and Religion, I was one of the editors on the book. I also contributed a uh, you know a selection on uh, the Dostoevsky and influences on Martin Scorsese. Mm-hmm. That had a lot to do with Taxi Driver, mm. a handful of other uh, films that uh, Scorsese has worked on over the years. But I really didn't focus on bringing out the dead. Um, and I asked Gerard Laughlin, a theologian. Um, long long associated with Durham University Mm -hmm. to work on this piece and uh, Gerard's uh, piece is excellent uh, Mm -hmm. on Bringing Out the Dead I encourage everybody to read it I was telling you earlier it is open access that's great Uh, it doesn't cost you $100 it should not cost you a thing as far as I know Uh, let me know if it does cost you something I'll try to work that out but uh, um, it should be uh, freely available on the web and Gerard's uh, you know, contribution sheds a lot of, uh, I think, important insights into the film. It's something I learned a lot from. Um, so my own particular, the reason why I selected this film, so, you know, going mm-hmm. back to the sort of Halloween themes, is that, you know, it was a movie that would have been on on my list to begin with, but it just seemed like a good fit with these yeah. themes. It's sort of connected with the exorcist in certain ways. Um, right. It does have a ghost story. Yeah. There, there are sort of horror elements woven into mm-hmm. uh, this film. It doesn't really play like a horror movie. I think it's closer to a drama right. um, than a horror film. But there's enough in there that I think it, it sort of felt like a, a good fit. And, I, and I'm going to explain a little bit about why that's the case. So so the movie is based on a novel of the same name, Bringing Out the Dead by Joe Connolly. So Joe Connolly uh, is a writer who grew up in Hell's Kitchen um, mm-hmm. in New York City, west of Midtown in Manhattan. Traditionally an area that was populated by... Um, Irish American immigrants was sort of an Irish enclave Uh, and uh, I think when he was sort of coming up it was in the process of gentrifying but it had not gentrified to the extent that it has today and if you you go to Hell's Kitchen today there's you know there's lots of uh, cool bars and cafes and the whole thing and uh, you know I think it's sort of a favorite hangout of, of actors and so on um, but in the 19, you know, 40s, 50s, and 60s, it still would have been pretty rough around the edges. Right. And uh, and Connolly, being born in the 1960s, you know, I think saw that side of it. And he came back uh, years later after college. I think he went to Cornell or Colgate or one of those places. Right? <laughs> yeah. And uh, he comes back to New York City and he works as a paramedic. And mm. part of his job was working in the Hell's Kitchen na- mm. neighborhood, his old haunt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and, and winds up, you know, taking patients, you know, often to a hospital in Hell's Kitchen called St. Clair's. Okay. And I was mentioning to you earlier that this, this uh, hospital, St. Clair's, was you know, founded by, uh, I think, the, the Franciscan, let me look this up, let me make sure I get this right, the Franciscan Sisters of Allegheny okay. in 1934. Mm. Um, and that, you know, by the 1980s, it had changed hands to another you know, sort of uh, you know, order of, of nurses. Um, and it became very prominent in its work in the AIDS crisis mm-hmm. of the 1980s and 1990s. Okay. Um, and so you would think this would just, this hospital would still be there today and so on, but um, apparently they were having staffing issues. There weren't yeah. enough nuns to work not. in the hospital, right? right? So um, there was hope that the state might come in and, and rescue the hospital, but it was deemed redundant, oh. and they closed the hospital down in 2007. Okay. So it's no longer there in Hell's Kitchen, but Connolly's novel does feature this hospital, mm-hmm. you know, not necessarily by name, but features this hospital quite frequently in the book, uh, and then Scorsese does as well. So I think it's fair to say that, you know, the, the New York City depicted in Bringing Out the Dead is not the New York City of the sort of cool cafes and bars that we know today when you go to Hell's Kitchen, but rather this kind of gritty... Very gritty, right, yeah. Sort of rough around the edges, mm-hmm. prostitutes, drug addicts, mm-hmm. this sort of thing uh, that, that, you know, is sort of the... I guess maybe a hallmark of Scorsese's yeah. uh, films, you know, going back to Mean Streets and Taxi Driver in the 1970s. So in a lot of ways, this is a movie that's attempting to kind of go back to his you know, earlier films in his career and kind of, if you will, update it. Mm-hmm. Right. And we'll come back to that in a little bit. But I, th- I think it's a film 
something just crashed over there. Uh, but it's, a, I think it's a film worth seeing just on its own merits. If you like Scorsese and you haven't seen this film, in a way you can't understand mm. his entire oeuvre without sort of paying attention to this film. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, it comes out October 22nd, 1999. So it is a Halloween release. Yeah. Right. And it has that kind of, right. Yeah. It's very appropriate. Uh, and it is, a, you know, again, a kind of meditation on death and redemption and purification through suffering or not. If you pay attention to Gerard's piece, we'll come yeah. back to that. But it's also the fourth collaboration between Martin Scorsese and Paul Schrader. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say a little bit more about Schrader in a minute, but the other projects they worked on together were Taxi Driver, 19, right. 1976, Raging Bull, mm-hmm. 1980, and The Last Temptation of Christ in 1988. Okay. So Schrader is a great filmmaker in his own right, a really interesting writer, a very interesting man. You know, yeah. He's a... If you ever listen, have you heard any interviews with him before? No, I've read them. I've yeah. never heard them. Yeah. yeah. He studied philosophy and theology as an undergraduate yeah. student. And he, a lot of his films are kind of like the, the working out of his mm-hmm. background in, in those disciplines. And he's also a, a film critic who was quite literally interested in understanding how theological and philosophical issues could be brought out in cinema. Okay. So in 1972, he wrote a book called Transcendental Style in Film, huh. Ozu, Bresson, and Dreher. Okay. And uh, it's a great book. I've assigned sections of it yeah. in my classes. Um, and what he argues in that book, and I'm going to come, I'm going to tie this into bringing okay. out the dead eventually, but okay. let me just get to this real quickly. <laughs> what he argues in that book is that there is a quote unquote common film form in and through which filmmakers can, tra- can express the transcendent. And he thinks this is done through certain camera angles, hmm. through certain types of dialogue and certain types of editing, editing that can sort of manifest the ineffable and the invisible and whatever is beyond normal sense experience. And again, he's not arguing that you can show God. Right. He's arguing that through this certain style, a kind of awareness of the transcendent can be made possible. Mm-hmm. So I want to recap how this works. Again, okay. I, think it, I think it might help us understand bringing out the dead. Yeah. So the first step in this style is what he calls le quotidien okay mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. the the everyday right mm-hmm. and he says right. this is a meticulous representation of the dull banal commonplaces of our everyday lives mm-hmm. so it's a little bit like what Siegfried Krakauer a sort of old film critic talked mm-hmm. about with realism right that, yeah. that that films that sort of hew closely to reality um you know are the ones that that open themselves up to these sort of deeper uh, interpretations mm-hmm. But Schrader's very careful to say that it's not just any reality. There has to be a kind of silence and stillness that prepares us for this kind of shock that's going to come okay. later, right? Right. Now, Bring Out the Dead doesn't really have a lot of silence <laughs> and stillness, no. <laughs> but it does have a lot of everydayness. There's oh. a, there, I think, yeah, the, the sort of yeah. humdrum of just going through the rounds, right? The, mm-hmm. the, the, the night shift, here I go again. Right. Um, and the, the kind of stuff, and I, I actually worked in a uh, in ER unit in Chicago. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, I was, I a, I was a chaplain. Can you believe that? Really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, and it, it, there is a kind of, it, it, you know, for me, it was just there for, you know, a semester, really, so just for a few months. But for me, it never got to be at all. But for the people that were there all the time, you see the sort of gunshot victims and so on. There is a sense in which, oh, yeah, there's, yeah, there's a guy over there. He's been shot. Can he go deal with his family? Then that comes out in the movie very clearly. Exactly. Right. So I think the film does capture this sense of everydayness. Mm -hmm. Okay. Schrader's next step is what he calls uh, un moment uh, décisif, right? A a, a decisive moment, Mm -hmm. right? Pardon my French pronunciation. (laughs) But, but, you know, he talks about how that, that, you know, this decisive moment expresses a disunity between man and the environment in which man lives, right? I'm quoting him here. Um, And he says that it constitutes an outburst of spiritual emotion that's totally inexplicable within everyday reality. Mm -hmm. Um, And we'll talk about this, but he thinks that it's in this decisive moment that you can sense this kind of touching of, of right. our world with that of the beyond, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and we'll, we'll, we can maybe discuss later what might sort of okay. be that moment in mm-hmm. bringing out the dead. Um, and then finally, he sees that all these films characterized by this transcendental style have a moment of stasis, which he des- describes as, quote, a frozen view of life, which does not resolve this disparity, oh. but transcends it. Okay. And yeah. this moment is triggered by the decisive action. So the decisive moment leads to this frozen moment of stasis where we get kind of an icon of right. the two worlds together, meeting together, right? Yeah. Um, so I think all of 
Scorsese, this is to kind of get back to the point here. I think all of Scorsese's films with Trader are structured like this. Yeah. Okay. Now this this yeah. could be a book, honestly. <laughs> right. And, and and I'm not ready to do that book. Yet. <laughs> but uh, but I will say that I think you know, bringing out the dead clearly displays these these features of everydayness as we just talked about, and then also this disunity um, that that sort of is expressed in a decisive moment, and then finally right. the stasis. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. So. Having said all that, that's that's what I want us to kind of think about okay. when we think about how this film works on a kind of spiritual level. But let's talk about the plot real okay. quick. Okay. Yeah. All right. So the protagonist of the film is is Frank Pierce, played by your guy, <laughs> Nicholas Nicolas Cage. Cage. Right. <laughs> and what did you think about his performance here? I thought it was yeah. good. Yeah. Um, my son, my other son, David Vining, who writes on film, he wrote about this and he said that, you know, he felt that, you know, Scorsese is able, you know, such a director, he's able to channel that Nicolas Cage energy mm-hmm. in the proper way. So mm-hmm. it's not overwhelming. It's still there. That kind of, you know, repressed manic yeah. energy, it's there. But I thought that it was. It's not really repressed. But, no, it's but, not yeah, repressed. Yeah. I mean, he's trying to attempt it to yes. repress. Right. right. Yeah. Right. So. No, no. It's, I think many critics now, and it's hard. I think for younger listeners, yeah. it's hard to know that Nicolas Cage was once an A-list movie star. Yeah, yeah. and he, you know, I think I don't want to say Leaving that, Las Vegas. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, adaptations of movie that right. I actually referenced in my Substack recently. Yeah, and I, he, you know, he did some really good stuff, and I think he's still considered to be a, a fine actor in a lot right. of ways. But this was in his heyday. Was, yeah, this was big. This was pulling a big star into the yeah. film. Uh, and it is considered, I think, one of his better movies uh, even today. So, okay, Nicolas Cage plays Frank, this paramedic, right? And he's fallen into this deep depression because, you know, what he likes about being a paramedic is saving people. Like, there's a juice that he right. gets from that. It's, right? I say it's more than likes. It's like an addiction. It's an addiction. I mean, and it's right. compared to that. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and it gives him deep satisfaction in his work, but then also in, in his own life. And so right. he is in this depression because he is no longer saving people he's on a bad run right he hasn't saved anybody for months right Right. and he's particularly haunted by this teenage homeless uh girl named rose Mm -hmm. uh and uh this is where some of the horror elements in the film come out because he sees rose's face throughout the city as they drive around at night you know maybe a a homeless person crouching in an alley will turn and look at him and it'll be rose right and uh you know as as i'll mention in a second but he, he has these different visions of her throughout the film um, and it is a haunting. I, I couldn't find immediately uh, the actress, but mm. she's very well chosen. There's something about her face that's both like like friendly, but also frightening in yeah. a way. I, I don't know. Yeah. It's a uh, it, it's um it is it'll it'll grab you a couple mm-hmm. times in the film where we see Rose appearing to him uh, to Frank. Uh, so in any case, uh, Frank is you know, deeply uh, upset. He sees this ghost. Um, and then, you know, he wants in a way to get out. He wants to leave this world behind. He, he's tired of being a paramedic. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's wearing him out. So the, the story itself unfolds over three different shifts as he kind of works through his mm-hmm. hatred of the job. The first shift, so it's a triduum, right? It's right. a kind of Easter <laughs> right. story, it right? Is. Uh, and the first night he goes out with his partner, Larry, played by John Goodman, right. in a very John Goodman role, yes. uh, right? And, you know, cynical, he just wants to eat, whatever, <laughs> you, know, where's, you know, where are we going to eat tonight? <laughs> right. um, and Larry, you know, uh, sorry, Larry and, and, and Frank are called to the apartment of a cardiac arrest victim, mm-hmm. right? And when he's there, they're able to stabilize the victim. They don't necessarily save him, but they're able right. to kind of stabilize him. And meanwhile, he, you know, meets uh, this victim's daughter, Mary, Mary Burke. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they strike up a relationship. I believe they, they knew each other before somewhat, right? Isn't that right? I think that's... I, yeah. I maybe recognize Like in the her. neighborhood. Yeah, from thing. the neighborhood. Yeah, yeah played right. by Par- Patricia Arquette. Right, Patricia, yeah, right. right. And she's quite good. Yeah, she yeah. is. Um, and so... This sort of kicks off a kind of recurring theme is like, what's going to happen with this Burke patient, this mm-hmm. Mr. Burke? He's, you know, uh, somebody who in a lot of respects looks like he's not going to make it, but through modern medicine is able mm-hmm. to be sustained. Um, the second night, Frank goes out with uh, Marcus, played by being Rames. I see you right. smiling. Yeah. yeah. He, he sort great, of steals the role. show. He does. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he he would win the uh, the the award of like you know this kind of he's only in the movie for ten to fifteen minutes, but he yeah. might be the most memorable thing about right. the movie. Right. Um, but Marcus is, you know, he's a deeply religious man, but kind of not. Right. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, he has the the rhetoric. And, right. 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 And I guess the beliefs, but right. But you know, yeah. but yeah, he he's not. 
he doesn't seem to have let the suffering and the pain of the job really sink in. Right. Right. And so uh, he and Marcus are going around and they actually do save some people, mm-hmm. but it's not Frank. It's Marcus right. that saves people. Right. And of course, this this follows. Marcus has belief. And, you know, <laughs> right. Of course. And if, he, and if he didn't save him, it would be their fault anyway. Right. right. So the, Marcus kind of keeps it all kind of skin you know, at surface level in some ways. Right. right? Um, and on the third night, Frank goes out with a, a paramedic named Tom, played by the late Tom Sizemore, who basically is Tom Sizemore. Yeah, you know? and who's psychotic, right? right. He yeah. wants to hurt people. Yeah. You know, he sees this as an excuse to beat up on drug addicts and so yeah. on. Um, and in the process of, of that shift, they're called to this drug den where Mary, Mary Burke, the, the daughter of this patient, uh, used to go. She's a recovering drug addict. I think I right. failed to mention that. Right. So, so they go to this, this drug den. Um, and now they actually do save somebody, the drug dealer who was caught up in a robbery. And so Frank can't win for losing, right? Well, you talk about horror. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that scene. That's an incredible scene. Because he's That like, might be my most rewatchable scene. Really? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, all right. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll that. Um, and so, so in, in the midst of this night, again, the sort of deep irony being that Frank wants to save you know, children or, mm-hmm. you know, homeless teens or whatever, ends up saving a drug dealer. Yeah. Right? And so he, he goes back to the hospital and he discovers here again, yet again, Mary Burke's father is being resuscitated. Uh, and he's and a kind of recurring theme again is that he hears the voice of this father telling him right. to let me die. Right. Um, and, and so, so I mean, yeah. they've resuscitated him like 14 times mm-hmm. or something they've you know put the paddles on him like 14 times by this time they admit so you know there's that question of you know how far right yeah, how, how right. far do you go right? right and and so frank hearing these voices or intuiting what mr burke must be feeling um decides to remove the breathing apparatus from mr burke when the doctors aren't around right. and then almost immediately mr burke passes away uh, and then Frank leaves to go tell Mary that her father has now uh, passed away mm-hmm. and they embrace and then he falls asleep uh, in her arms. And this is a, clearly an, an icon. And, uh, you know, yeah. th- this is the moment of stasis. stasis right? right. This is an icon of Michelangelo's Madonna della Pietà. Mm-hmm. Right. So so the Pietà. Right. Which is this moment where uh, Jesus's body is handed to, to Mary. Mm-hmm. Right. And and Scorsese has obviously studied this quite carefully and everything's sort of set up to look exactly like Mm -hmm. Michelangelo's famous sculpture, which is in the Vatican. Um, And so that's sort of the plot, right? And and it's, um, you know, it it has this inherent drama, right? You have Mm -hmm. life and death, you have people who are, you have ghosts, you have voices, you have suffering. But in another sense, you know, I, my students would say, well, it's, it's, not, as, it's not as exciting as some, some other Scorsese <laughs> right. movies. And there's some, there's some truth to that because there's a lot of introspection. Mm-hmm. We get a lot of sort of Frank's. There's a lot of scenes where Frank just seems completely unhinged right. um, in some ways. And you're not really sure if it's, is it funny or not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, it is, a, a, I would think, a movie that really wants to hit these theological questions uh, okay. head on. Um, so I don't. Do you want anything before I jump into what I would consider to be the key themes here? Do you have no? Anything I want to hear yeah. what you have to okay, say. Okay. All right. Yeah. So I, I sum this up. I think we have three key themes and one tough question. Okay. Yes. All right. That's what I got. All right. So, so first of all, and I'm borrowing this straight from Gerard's uh, yeah. article uh, in in uh, my book Scorsese and Religion, uh, that bringing out the dead is a palimpsest. Okay, that's the word he uses, okay. which is a, a kind of document, right? Where there's an overriding of one text upon another. It's a kind of mm-hmm. layering of ideas mm-hmm. uh, and memories and, and thoughts and mm-hmm. so on. And Gerard connects it, I think rightly, with Taxi Driver. And if you go to, if you go to our article, there's, there's screenshots of different images where it's mm-hmm. very similar, like either lighting or a similar camera angle that Scorsese uses. So in a way, this is very much a kind of retelling of Taxi mm-hmm. Driver but from a different perspective. And it's true that like Travis, Travis Bickle and Taxi yeah. Driver, who is this burnout kind of lonely guy wants to avenge this um, abuse of this young prostitute Iris in the film and he lashes out with violence right well there's a sense in which we can only save this world through violence suffering taking yeah, right? right that seems to be the message of taxi driver in some ways which is why it's become kind of a cult classic it's a vigilante yeah, film right, in some ways right, right? Um, Frank however in, it has very much the same kind of tendencies right he's burnt out he's lonely he's frustrated depressed what have you um, but he ultimately learns that it's not through suffering that salvation occurs 
others, right? That right. It's, it's not it's not it's not through some agonistic struggle against others, but rather through receiving. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this becomes a kind of essential sort of theme in the movie. Again, Gerard's piece really unpacks that. If anybody wants to go read it, it's, it's really quite worth worth, worth looking at. Um, I think another key theme in the in the uh, film is this need for compassion and mercy towards oneself. Yeah. Um, and you know, Frank at the end, I think again, this is very much thematically tied to the previous point, but when he goes and falls into Mary's arms, right? There is a sense in which, uh, there's somebody's talking. Uh, there's a sense in which they don't, they know we're recording a podcast. <laughs> Gee, I don't know. Let's put it <laughs> yeah, aside. Right. I'm going to put it aside. All right. So anyway, luckily I don't have too much more farther to go, but, uh, but you know, so Frank lets himself rest, right? He can't sleep throughout the film. He's taking sleeping pills and so on. Um, now he, he falls into the right. sleep, right? And then he allows himself to receive her, compassion her love her yeah. warmth uh and again scorsese captures this in this frozen moment right mm-hmm. um where where we, we get this kind of static image of the divine compassion right right, right. um and i think finally uh i think it's the, the another sort of key theme is the idea that god is god and that human beings are not saviors yeah right right you know we can't we we can't sort of go around yeah. just with a savior complex trying to make everything right, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think this is maybe where the time of the exorcist comes in. Yeah. Right. But, in, but Frank has to learn that he has to kind of let go. Right. So that yeah. he can actually love other people. Right. Instead of always trying to do for them. Maybe it's a Mary Martha thing. I don't know if you, it yeah. might be. Yeah. I mean, he'll never be at peace because it's just impossible to save everybody. We're, we are going to die. You mm-hmm. can't, you know, rescue everybody right and i think that part of a conversation isn't it that we're all gonna die i can't remember which one yeah but go ahead no no i think but i think you're right i mean i think uh, you know frank like travis bickle is mm-hmm. tortured by those he hasn't helped or what mm-hmm. he can't do by the the sort of ugliness of urban landscapes mm-hmm. and poverty and criminality and all these sorts of things and again this is good this is classic scorsese territory but what makes bringing out the dead unique is that frank kind of realizes that he needs to let some of that go yeah. right not that he not you know not so he can go just do nothing forever I mean, that, right. the movie the movie stops before we know what the next chapter would have been yeah but just that he receive care and that and that in doing that he establishes like sort of solidifies those relationships with others mm-hmm. um and i think it is it's it's quite a beautiful ending and it, and it, and it turns that that sort of ending of, of Taxi Driver upside down. Yeah. Right? Where in Taxi Driver, he goes and shoots up like this brothel. Right? Yeah. Here we have Frank showing mercy to Mr. Burke going and also showing mercy to his daughter and then her showing mercy to him. Right. And it, there's, a, a, I think, a much more kind of, if you will, kind of uplifting, maybe like along the lines of The Exorcist, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Just right. the same. Yeah. Not just Inter- the same. Entertained. Yeah. But Okay. My question would be, and I, okay. I asked you this earlier, is like, to what extent is Frank, Frank's decision to, and I think this is the, the decisive moment right, yeah. in some respects, Frank's decision to remove the breathing apparatus from mm-hmm. Mr. Burke, is that consistent with Catholic teaching? You think right. so? I do too. But yeah, yeah I mean, and again, yeah. neither of us speak officially for the Roman Catholic no, Church. That's right. <laughs> uh, but, you know, my understanding of Catholic medical ethics, you know, this man, you know, was pronounced dead mm-hmm. at the scene. Uh, originally and over the course of three days was resuscitated over a dozen times had never regained consciousness not that that means anything you know no we're not talking about quality of life or anything like that but i think that you know it's he didn't actively kill the man yeah he didn't uh he just removed the uh, i think it would be considered extraordinary means what he was experiencing but i do want to say something else about that and i don't know exactly what this means but i was struck one of the things that struck me in the film was the whole matter of breath and breathing is that a couple of times people say have you ever given mouth to mouth have Mm -hmm. you ever given mouth to mouth as if i think a young guy asks him that as if it's kind of you know gross why would you you know I hope I never have to do that. And uh, Frank says, yeah, to a baby. I think he's, that's what he says. Yes, I have. And, and then he does give mouth to mouth to, I can't remember who. Uh, well, Marcus does. Yeah. To, oh yeah. To Ivy banging. That's right. That's <laughs> Which, right. I'll come back to that. <laughs> right. Ivy <Yeah. laughs> But then when he does remove the breathing tube right. from Mr. Burke in order to, not alert the nurses you know because if he stopped breathing if his heart stopped Mm. it would there would be an alarm that goes Mm. off so in order for that not to happen frank 
takes the tube and breathes for him mm -hmm. until he figures he knows that the man has passed away and then he lets right. go so there it's like a i don't know it's a metaphor for something i'm not sure but you know he had been trying to give breath his own oh, breath yeah, yeah yeah that's really good and yeah then when he can finally kind of reconcile himself to his own limitations and you know the power of of god i would say to be in control of life he understands that maybe the best he can do is you know take in and breathe mm. do something for somebody else in this way right yeah no i think that's great and, yeah. and for those who are interested in this sort of you know, catholic med medical ethics piece here i it seems like from very cursory look through the internet that you know, John Paul II's Evangelium Vitae is the place to look, section 65. Right. But I do think, I, I don't think this falls outside of no. the purview of Catholic. Yeah, I don't ethics. think so. Um, and, and, and in any case, it's, it's an interesting question, probably one that people could use in classes or whatever discussions right. of this issue, because it, is it is an issue that people confront uh, nowadays. And so I think, you know, again, ultimately, this is sort of my, my sort of wrap up before I do my categories, mm -hmm, but I, mm -hmm. I think it's a, it's a movie that uh, you know, hits on a lot of deep theological themes. I think it does so, and I mean, it's it's typically directed with Scorsese flair. There's a lot of needle oh, drops. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's the different use different speeds of film that oh, are used at, at times, yeah. and uh, you know, it's it's again classic New York City. There's some great shots of the city in the mm -hmm. film, but at the same time, it's it's not it's not just your typical Scorsese film, and I think right. it sticks out due to its, its sort of the centrality of these Catholic theological themes in, in the film. Yeah. So the categories. Yeah, the categories. Yes. Okay, right. so the funniest moment. <laughs> it's definitely Marcus's oh, revival yeah, of, of I Be Bangin'. So, yeah. <laughs> so, when they, so the, when they go to this, like, punk club, right? right. And everybody there is, like, doing, like, some kind of opioid. Right. And well, there's this, yeah. I mean, that's part of it. There's, there's the this drug yeah. going around called the Red Death, right? right. Very Poe po reference, perhaps also yeah. appropriate for Halloween. Right. Um, but so this uh, this red death there is this kind of drug they keep encountering mm -hmm. and uh, they find this uh, this kind of wild punk rocker guy. Mm -hmm. He's overdosed. Mm -hmm. He's passed out on the floor. Mute the punk music's going everything. Right. So Marcus and uh, and Frank go in and Marcus gathers all of these, you know, you know, young punk rockers right. around him and they have like a prayer. Right. right? He says, join hands yeah. or raise your hands yeah. or lay hands. Right. Right. It's sort, right. Of, sort of in like, a, you know, kind of a black evangelical tradition, right? Mm -hmm. There's, you know, and it's very kind of passionate and, and, uh, and it, and it works. Right? Well, <laughs> so, I mean, he has of, told he has Narcan Frank, as well, he has Narcan right? and he told <laughs> Frank to inject him. Right. So yeah, <laughs> but he does it. He kind of plays with them and right. they're all like, Oh my God, it's a yeah. miracle. Right. 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 Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but the funniest part is when being Rames, who's brilliant in this right. film and he's kind of on a heater at this point too, cause he'd been in Pulp Fiction a couple yeah. years before. Um, now he's, now I think of him as the Arby's guy, <laughs> yeah, but, uh, right. but, uh, in any case, uh, you know, uh, Ving Rhames, you know, says, you know, he says, he holds up, I be banging in prayer. And it's just so funny. It, it is, it is yeah, absolutely great. great. Okay. Yeah. And then most poignant moment. I think it is probably the Pietas, right? Scene, right? The, the scene yeah. where, because you do, one thing that Cage does really well is you are tired watching Frank. Yeah. And he makes you feel tired. Right. And when he finally goes to sleep, it's like, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He uh, deserves this scene. Yeah. 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 So I think that's the most poignant okay. moment. Yeah. And then uh, best. Uh, if you could only watch one scene. Yeah, so I struggle with this one. I mean, you could say that last moment, I think. Yeah. I love the opening with Van Morrison's TV Sheets, which is a, a great song yeah. from 1967. Right? Yeah. Kind of blues-oriented. It was fa famously, could have been about somebody that Van Morrison knew, but in any case, it's about a tuberculosis patient uh, and uh, hmm. a young man who sort of has sort of regrets he wasn't able to, to help her. Scorsese oh. uses this very intentionally. Yeah. And it's the scenes of the ambulance going through New York. It, it very much sets this that sort of tempo and the, the sort of style of the film immediately right um i also did think the the rescue of Cy, the drug den was quite powerful yeah um, precisely because it's just not what you expect it strikes <laughs> no. you as like what oh geez we gotta save this guy <laughs> right he's a creep right. you know right um right. and there's also the use of ub40's red red wine in that scene which yeah. is again another discordant <laughs> note um so anyway, right. yeah okay and then best performance I mean, I think it is Cage. I agree with you, but yeah. Ving Rhames has to be mentioned. I mean, sure. you know, like I said, it, he a lot of the sort of YouTube clips of the movie are Ving uh, Rhames scenes. Of course, yeah, yeah he kind of steals the show. Most accessible. Okay, yeah. and then the ultimate takeaway. 
Yeah, okay, so I think, thought about this a little bit, I think the ultimate takeaway is that receptivity has as much to do with religious life as striving. Mm. That's what I yeah. would say. What yeah. do you think? I, Does that work? I would agree. That works yeah. great. I okay. think so. Yeah. All right. <laughs> All right. So, so that that will wrap up then this Halloween episode. Yeah. All right. Two ghost movies. Yeah. Okay. In a way. Yeah. If you have a chance tonight, watch them. <laughs> or over the next couple of days during All Holotide, we still have All Saints Day and All Souls. So. Right. And uh, I, I yeah. also, I just want to add, you know, when I was thinking about how these movies tie together, I said, you know, both of them have protagonists who struggle with guilt about the fact that they were not able to save, rescue people. But also, you know, considering our time of, you know, all of Hallowtide and All Saints, All Souls, and thinking of the dead and so on, it seems to me both of them kind of, in a a way, uh, bring to mind the theme of reconciliation with, between the living and the dead, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And reconciliation of our sense of duty and responsibility and our sense of communion um so i I think they they work together really well uh again i'm glad i was able to see it glad i was able to rewatch the exorcist and likewise yeah and so we'll be back in a couple of weeks yeah you're you know you're this this (laughs) world traveler and uh and we'll we'll get it in we'll we'll get it in at some point and i actually don't even remember what my 17 was i don't either i'll have to watch it on a plane yeah (laughs) Yeah, we are going to try to go to a regular schedule. We're not we're not sure, but we might try to do that of of releasing just so you can know that when you wake up on Monday morning, yeah, we'll be there. I, I'm not confident we'll be that organized, <laughs> but we're, we're, we're it, it's it's certainly a goal worth. Yeah. So yeah. thank you all for listening. Yeah. Thank you. Yep. Enjoy. Uh, put a little hollow in your Halloween and enjoy the rest of the afternoon. We'll see you. Bye.